of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible and, or a phone app want to turn there, that, that'd be great. We're going to look at the last four verses of the whole letter, of chapter 13, the whole letter. So you can turn there if you want. We'll get there in just a second. Uh, but Paul's closing, so uh, this um, uh, may not be a shock, but it is uh, Paul's closing, kind of like the introduction did. I talked about this several months ago, too, about the intro. But uh, historically, it follows some of the customs of ancient letter writing, but theologically, Kind of one last time, uh, Paul, or sort of God through Paul, is going to take us on a deep dive into uh, some of the depths of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as well as into some important aspects of what he wants churches to be like and sort of to do in light of the the theology and exhortations uh, that were included. So uh, kind of have your uh, ears and antennas, uh, ears open, antennas up for that um, coming up today too as well. So um, but a couple of things to start off. I want to start with a summary of um, what Paul has basically been saying in the letter. This is a very crude summary. It's actually not really meant to be a summary of the whole book. There's so much that, that we've talked about these past few months together. But a summary of Paul's priorities, I'll call it, that, that kind of serves as a summary maybe of the last couple of chapters at least. But if you're new uh, to the book, this will hopefully help you get your, get your bearings. But um, also serve as a way to be a context for the last four verses. They do, they do relate in a way, and I'll get to that later. But uh, one of Paul's big priorities in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, this letter, has been to teach the Corinthians, to show his love for them. He wants them to know that he loves them, even though they reject him as a leader. So that's a big part of the book that I know most of you have been here for, but if you haven't, just know that this church that he started he knows most of these people personally, maybe not all of them at this point, he's been away for some time, but he knows them personally, he has a deep, deep, deep love for them, he's been at pains to show that, even though they're starting to reject him or not appreciate him as a leader. Now one thing I want to say kind of off of this is a reminder that this book is a letter ultimately from Christ to us, written not by ink, but with the spirit of the living God, even with his own blood spilt for our sins. So if, if that, actually kind of quoting there from the ch- uh, chapter 3, if you remember that, Paul talks about um, the church actually being kind of a letter from, from Christ uh, too, so it's a little bit different angle, but in the spirit of that, these are ultimately letters written from God to us, because Paul didn't love Hiawatha Church, right? He didn't, that'd be anachronistic to say that, but God did. And so if God wrote these letters ultimately, which the Bible does itself, uh, kind of uphold that idea and teach, even though these are historical letters, they're, his, they're, they're factual, they happened. These are actual cities, actual churches written by real people, Paul, like us, all of whom had sin and, and they were saved by Jesus. These are, these are historical things, but they also have uh, mysticism in them. They also have allegory in them. They're, they're also to be understood as though behind the words of Paul to the Corinthians in this case is actually the, the words of God to, to us. And so uh, one other thing we've, we've been seeing in the letter is how Paul then wanted his love for the Corinthians to essentially be a demonstration of Christ's love for the, the Corinthians. And so one, as an example, it's why to go back to this actually, uh, point one, is one of the big takeaways then from this book is not just understand that Paul had love for the Corinthians, even though they kind of stopped loving him, but to understand that the good news in that is that Christ's love for us is not dependent on our love for him. His love comes first, always, then our love comes second. The Bible explicitly teaches this elsewhere in places like 1 John 4, that uh, that love is to be understood as not in the sense that we love God, but he loved us by sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. 
and then our love is sort of reciprocated in the shadow of that. But it also says that motif and theme implicitly here throughout the love letter pages of 2 Corinthians, which again is a letter from the Spirit of God himself to us, written not by ink, but by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. I'll come back to a little bit of that later on. That's been a big theme in this book, If you are, especially if you're just joining this, uh, us in this series, just to understand that. The second point, uh, or one of Paul's priorities, is that they would believe the true gospel, the, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Three, that, um, that they would come to understand that he is a true apostle or a true church leader or a true sent one from Jesus Christ to, to be kind of a um, harbinger in a way, but an establisher of the first century church uh, that began in Jerusalem but now is spreading throughout all Asia Minor into these Greco-Roman port cities and, and beyond, all the way to Rome and, and, uh, and, and beyond. Actually, in Romans, Paul mentions Spain, so he wants to go uh, that far to just sort of the very outer reaches of the Roman Empire, the kind of the western fringe, that's where he wanted to go. So, um, but anyway, Paul wanted them to know, because they were starting to disbelieve this, that he actually is a true apostle. He has the marks of apostleship. And then in that, to reject the teaching of the, quote, super apostles, his term, kind of a sarcastic term because they weren't super, but they're acting that way, which pushed law on top of grace or obligatory commandment keeping on top of the grace of God. Um, and then, then on top of that, not to, not to say, Paul's not saying, and Jesse talked about this last week, but not that they would necessarily think highly of him, but they, that they would accept his teaching, whether from him or someone else. And then four, finally, that they would love each other. This is a big priority for Paul, that they would love each other either by way of financial support of other poor churches in the region. That was a big part of chapters 8 and 9, if you remember that. Or just simply by, by way of acts of love and kindness and agreement within their own local church or the church as it's represented in their city. Uh, again, this, this being Corinth. All right, so let's read with those things in mind. Let's go and read the last four verses of the, the chapter and, um, and, of course, the whole book as well. We'll start in verse 11, and we'll come back and really kind of go verse by verse through this today. So verse 11, Paul says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All right, so I want to start back in verse 11. Like I said, we're going to go through this uh, kind of a verse at a time or three big sections today. So let's start with verse 11. Paul says, finally rejoice. There's this idea here that Paul, again, even though this came up thematically in the letter, Paul wants rejoicing and he wants agreement and unity and restoration relationally in the church. So basically, the introduction to the conclusion, if you want to think about it that way, is finally, brothers, rejoice. Be happy in, in the Lord. And that word brothers is from the Greek word adelphoi, which can be inclusive to mean brothers and sisters, uh, or exclusive referring only to men. Or think of like how we use mankind, that phrase, to be inclusive uh, of, of both genders, obviously. So uh, here it's clearly inclusive to refer to the whole church. So male and female, leader and non-leader. He's just saying here, all of you rejoice. Be happy in God. Worship him. 
sing a song to him who has saved us at great cost to himself. Or maybe to think, isn't it a miracle that any of us are saved at all? That our churches, that the, the church in Corinth exists at all is a miracle. That the church in Minneapolis in the 21st century, Hiawatha Church, that we exist at all, uh, it's a miracle. It's not the works of man, it is the work of God. And, and in the end, isn't it really just that alone that, that really matters? That God loved us at great cost to himself and that we are saved forever because of it? And I love that his, his letter ends this way in light of all that he said up to this point because much of the content of the letters we've been dealing with uh, has been uh, kind of orbiting around the idea of disagreement in the church or seeking to mend relationships and overall addressing fairly big issues and problems like rampant false teaching and rampant sin. And so Paul is saying here, he's basically giving the final word to optimism. Uh, he, he's saying we, we have much to be thankful for as Christians, even when we suffer, even when we disagree. And, and that is a really great principle, by the way, for how to get through petty issues at, as a church. By God's grace, we are, um, some of you have been here for a few weeks, some of you have been here um, for 14 years, like, like myself. Um, but in general, God has been really, really, well, he's always been good to us. But in general, we have had a lot of help as a church. Um, but this is, this is helpful. When, when we are at odds with someone at Hiawatha, that, that has happened, will happen, it it's going to happen. Um, when we're hurt by them or when we're in disagreement with someone, like Paul was with the Corinthians, remember, sometimes the best way to get past it is just to worship together, uh, to focus more on the big things so the small things are kept in check and become less important. Uh, we say a lot here when we talk about our values that are in our intro class or um, even just when we teach the Bible. We, we are a community built on the bloody cross and the glaringly empty, empty tomb. Not a small worldly agenda, not a social or political cause, nor are we a social club or any such thing. We're a church. And when we rejoice in the gospel together, and I think Paul knows this, that's why he's signing off this way. When we rejoice in the gospel together, in, uh, we, we will save ourselves essentially from poor theology because Poor theology doesn't rejoice in God. Instead, it seeks to work harder to fix things, and it makes us impatient or frustrated when we're not seeing results, or fearful maybe, crushed, when we start to view our relationship with God based on something other than grace. But it also saves us from bickering and from infighting. Uh, and so, again, Paul is saying we have much to be thankful for, Corinthians. God is saying to all of us, to the church at large, we have much to be thankful for, rejoicing uh, should be kind of a final word uh, to our life in a lot of ways. And, and so remember that. Remind each other of that. Practice that. And when we worship, let's worship together in one voice and not alone. It's partly also what I think that Paul gets at uh, here when he says agree with one another. Obviously, that implies disagreement, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have to work for the agreement. So there's disagreement happening in the church. But we know from others of Paul's letters that agreement has to do with agreement on the more important issues. Not that we'll be alike in every way. So Paul's not saying, I want you all to agree on what the best movie ever made was, you know, or something like that. That's petty, right? Uh, he's saying, I want you to agree on things that matter, things that are actually really uh, important. And I think you get a sense for that here in places like Philippians 4. Paul says, I entreat these two women. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche, 
to agree in the Lord. It's not just to agree on things but, and to be perfectly alike, but to agree in Jesus, to agree on the Lord. These are two women that were fighting in the church, and he's begging them to agree on Jesus, agree on what the gospel is, agree to put Jesus first, and other things at best a distant second. 1 Corinthians 2.2, remember this? This is his first letter to the church, of course, but he says, when I planted your church, Corinthians, this is the mentality that I brought. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I chose to not know things except the most important thing. I chose to lay those things down. Not that we never talk about these things, but I chose to to know only, essentially, Christ, and not just the God-man, but him crucified for your sins. That's what I chose to know. That's what you heard and believed. That's what established you. That's what gave you unity. That's what made you a church at all. So why are you moving on from that? Right? This is kind of what he's, been, what he's been saying in the letter. Is it a shock that you have disunity? It shouldn't be because you've moved on from this. you centralized secondary matters rather than, um, you know, sort of beat the drum of uh, the, the main things. So this is what he's wanted. And I think as a church, practically, if we agree on Jesus, everything, will, everything else will probably work itself out. doesn't mean there won't be bumps, but things will probably be worked out. If we don't agree on Jesus or in the Lord, then that thing, whatever it is that we're putting on the throne, that becomes the stumbling stone towards unity. It's just going to. There's no way for it not to. And again, I think Paul knows this. That's why he's kind of signing off this way. But guys, this, man, I was thinking about this this past week. I've read this a hundred times, but I was really trying to slow down and read this. And that statement, agree with one another, that is radical teaching, is it not? Like, that is, that's crazy to say, agree with one another, you know, to a setting or a church where people have rampant disagreement, and then to expect it to be possible. I mean, he's like saying, agree with people that you disagree with wholesale, or agree with people that you don't get along with. And I think it begs the question, how, right? Especially if you have strong disagreement with people, but And his answer has been throughout the book, by way of Christ, by way of Jesus. Agree in the Lord, disagree on the minors, but in both those spaces, have unity. Think alike. That's possible in Christ. It's possible to think a lot like people who are different from us. I I remember talking to um, a couple of people a few years ago on those terms. We had actually pretty big theological disagreements on these things, on other things. But I remember looking at them and just saying, guys, do you realize that both of us believe that Jesus walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago? Like, that actually happened? We both believe that actually happened? Like, do you realize how similar that makes us? How alike that makes us compared to others who don't believe that happened? We're so much alike. You know, so in the spirit of, and other things you can in that blank, but in the spirit of that, this is the way we, we should think. This is the way we should work for unity um, and that takes work. It, it can take, it can come at, at cost, you know, uh, to ourselves uh, as well because it it's, comes at the cost of not being right all the time or laying down things we otherwise might care a bit more about. So here Paul says, aim for restoration. Because you've been restored to God, you've been made right with God. Because you have peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus. Because now you have spiritual agreements with God, you are um, one, you have the mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Paul says in Philippians 2, you now, Christian, 
have the mind of Jesus Christ in you. You have agreement with the one who made you. You have agreement with God where you formally disagreed. You hated him. You disbelieved in him. We all did. Now that's not the case anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. But now in that spiritual vein, go and think physically and apply that physically with other Christians that you live around and that you're in family with. Have that with each other. Have unity in the Spirit, to quote from him elsewhere. All right, let's move on to this next two verses. Paul then talks, I'm calling this greetings in the gospel. Paul talks about greetings. In verse 12 and 13, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then 13, all the saints greet you. So Paul is not there, remember. Obviously, he's writing a letter to them. He is in Macedonia. He's ready from afar, but he knows other Christians in those cities or where he's been traveling. And he says, all those Christians, they say hello. All those other Christians, many of whom you haven't met, they greet you. And then in verse 12, again, he wants them to be greeting one another as well. So first, here it probably goes without saying, but the phrase and idea, holy kiss, was a cultural construct, not, you know, not unlike a handshake is to some cultures like ours or a bow to other cultures. The, the point is not to replicate it perfectly, uh, but to greet one another in an intimate, familial way. That's just basically the principle there. And I think verse 12, at least in part, has Sunday morning gatherings in focus. Uh, that's pretty clear from the context, but it could also look a lot like, you know, in our day, because we have other ways of doing this, uh, sending impromptu emails and texting one another and calling one another on a whim and saying hello and checking in and, and um, praying for one another. It goes a long way. Those kind of things, um, like I've been on the receiving end of a lot of those things from a lot of you guys. It, it's very encouraging. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have or you've been on the front end of that. Like these are, these are health-giving things for a church, just on a whim, spontaneously to greet, to check in, to say hello, to want someone's best to ask how they're doing. Um, I mean, especially like during a scattered pandemic, right? Uh, these things have been pretty important for us ministerially this year. But pandemic or not, this is, um, this is an, an, important, an important thing. Spencer and I and Peter were laughing this morning. Obviously, there was no pandemic going on in that day because they could kiss each other, right? So, but, so pandemic or not, uh, the greeting is pretty crucial for, for our lives. But note when he says, that there's a lot more, that's kind of the face value piece, but there's a lot more going on. When he says in verse 13, all the saints greet you, he's basically saying with these two verses together, do to each other what has been done for you by others who are not in your church. You see that? Do to others, you do amongst yourselves what has first been done for you from outside your church. You have been greeted, prayed for, and shown kindness by all the saints. Rich, poor, male, female, old, young, Jew, Gentile, North African, Roman, Asian. They all see you and greet you even from afar. So Paul's saying, do that for one another. This idea is, it might seem kind of like a passing thing, but it's actually extremely theologically important. Do something that has first been done for you. And when we frame it that way, maybe, it, maybe this filled your brain too, but this week I'm thinking that sounds a lot like things we hear elsewhere in the Bible, like say from Romans 15, 7, 
which there Paul says, the Roman church, therefore, church, welcome or greet one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So again, there he's anchoring the greeting in what God has first done for them in making it possible to be greeted by God, to be welcomed by him, to be made one with him. And so another way to look at these verses is to see Jesus in verse 13, or in the saints, or um, in his body, right, which is the church. These are ways we should think as well. Uh, Anytime you guys have been greeted or shown kindness by a Christian, the Bible's saying, that is God. That is not just the person, that's God in them, showing you yet again that because of Jesus, there's no more enmity, there's no more fights, there's no more disagreement, there's no more separation. But in Christ, God says, hello, my son or daughter. I love you. And when the church is filled with greetings, it's filled with many dramatizations of that gospel truth where we might sing it explicitly or preach it explicitly or eat it in communion. When we greet one another, we remember God first greeted me in Jesus. And because of that, it can spill out now. It can, the cup can overflow and spill over the table of the church, the table of our lives, into, into other things. And so it's, it's kind of a, deep, it's a deeper meaning idea. That it, when seeing Jesus in the saints gives us this deeper meaning of God greeted us graciously through his son, but not without paying the ultimate price. And actually, verse 12, too, the language of verse 12, specifically holy kiss, even takes on a deeper meaning here, too, in helping us remember that Jesus was kissed by Judas. If you remember this in in Matthew 26 and other places, all the Gospels um, mention this, but Judas, one of Jesus' best friends, one of his disciples, betrays Jesus. He kisses him uh, to expose his identity. It's a kiss of betrayal right before being crucified. That happens so that future kiss greetings between two at odds parties could take place. First and foremost, between us and God, Psalm 2-7 says, kiss the son, speaking of Jesus. But secondly, between us and other Christians. And so I'll try to simplify it and boil it down or say it differently by saying it this way. The way that God greeted us was to first be kissed with betrayal. Jesus was kissed and slapped on the cheek and then crucified so that we can be greeted lovingly by God and not in fear of rejection. And so that now we can greet others in love and with a pure motive. And I think Paul embodies this well in the letter, that even though the Corinthians have major issues personally with him, and that as a church community, they do as well, even though they're entertaining false teaching, even though they're sinning against Paul and God, Even though all that's in place, the letter ends with a greeting. And and it's the same with us. Like, our story will end not with our sin being replayed, not with a fiery expectation of judgment that Hebrews talks about, but instead with a loving greeting from God on a new earth. That's how your story will end, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, if you become one, that's how your story will end as well. But here's the thing. That's only possible because Jesus first took the kiss of death on himself. 
for us in love. He absorbed our problems. He took on the thing, a negative version of the thing, so that the positive version could be uh, experienced by us. I saw a YouTube video yesterday. It's kind of similar, kind of not, but I thought I'd mention it. It was of one of those videos where, um, where someone's shaving someone's head because they have cancer, or in this case, it was a, this guy's girlfriend who had alopecia. She was losing her hair. Um, you guys ever seen these? And then all of a sudden, they turn the razor on themselves, and they start shaving their own head after they, just to kind of like create love and solidarity, you know, for that person. They're pretty emotional and powerful because this happened. This guy's like shaving his girlfriend's head and then he finishes and goes right to his head and she sees it and just breaks down, just weeps, you know. And I would say, I'm watching this thinking, um, I'm being deeply moved, but she clearly is more. That The reason why she's crying, the reason why this isn't, emotive, emotional for us is because that's really what you're seeing in those videos is Christianity. That's really what you're seeing is we ourselves were kissed by death, but Jesus became that for us on the cross. We became sinners, were sinners, but Jesus became that for us on the cross. We deserve death and we're dead in ourselves, but he became that death or took on death on the cross in love, right? When he didn't have to. You see, like we should have that same kind of emotive response to the gospel that we have in these, in the grand scheme of things, these lesser YouTube videos, even though they're real, the spirit of God can be in them as well. Like that's what the gospel is. God took on our pain. He took on our sickness. And in this case with the kissing idea, that's what happened. Death kissed us, but Jesus was kissed much more by it. So instead we might be we might have perfect union with God. We might kiss the Son or kiss, have perfect union with Him and experience that lovingly in Christian community as much as the Lord provides. All right, this last piece is the idea of um, the Trinity be with you. So verse 14, again, Paul, this is the last verse. <clears throat> Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, uh, interesting tidbit here. This is the only time that Paul explicitly ends his letters with a Trinitarian greeting. In other words, where each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is clearly named and kind of linked with an attribute or a thing that he wants to be with uh, the, the church. But that's actually one of the big things to see is these are things, not actions. Things to be with people not actions to be worked out. You guys see that? It's actually not as clear in the phrase love of God um, because in English that can mean a couple of things. And in, in, in Greek syntax or, or grammar, this is the genitive case of the noun, which, love of God, which means may, may God's love, the love he possesses and shows to you ultimately through his son, may that love be with you. He's, he's not saying, may your love of God increase, though it's not a bad prayer. He's not saying that here. It's not our love for God increases. It's the, the love God possesses, that that would be with us, that that's the thing or the noun, the thing that would be with. It's not something for us to work out, but a thing to want and to pray for and to wish to be with Christians and a church uh, forever, indefinitely. It's a great prayer, a great wish, a great blessing or benediction uh, at, at the end. <clears throat> so what I want to do 
and this will kind of start to close us up in this series, I, I want to flush this out a little bit more. Each of these clauses, the grace of Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, kind of pulling from a lot of what Paul's been saying in this letter. So think of it like a hyperlink you click on, and it opens up a web page that kind of flushes out the idea um, a, a little bit more. So I'm just going to read this. This will be on screen. and have a few things to say here um, at, at the end. So Paul says, may, may the grace of Jesus Christ be with you. May his mercy rest upon you. May you live out of the undeserved favor you've been shown by him. May his nail-pierced hands reach out to you every day. Not the stone-cold tablets of the law, which have no hands, but Jesus's, which actually worked for your deliverance. And may his grace liberate you to think more of others than yourself, because in him you have your prize. May the love of God be with you. May you feel the Father's loving smile and not the simple toleration of a heavenly benevolent boss. May you remember that God did not withhold his one and only son, but gave him up for you. May his generous desire to share himself with you forever be with your spirit. For he made you not because he needed you, but because he wanted to share his everlasting friendship with you. And then may the fellowship of the Spirit also be with you. May this mystical and beautiful reality always be with you. That Jesus Christ is in you. That you have fellowship with God by way of the Son in the Holy Spirit. May his union with you by the Spirit, not by the works of your hands, liberate you to stop striving and instead to start gladly resting in the Spirit of Mary, not Martha. May you have fellowship with his church as a physical demonstration of this reality so your salvation is dictated by a relationship and not by a type of self-centered individualistic asceticism or moralism. So again, I, I hinted at this before, um, but let me, let, me just, let me read this to you actually. Like the letter, like 2 Corinthians ends not with a threat for disobedience or sin, nor with a promise of reward for doing good, but instead with a pronouncement of grace, love, and closeness with God, so does our own spiritual journey end this way in Christ, both now and in the future and forever. I think that these segments of the letters, really of the whole Bible, they might be easy to read over, um, and think there's not as much there. But if you guys, speaking to those of you who are Christians here especially, if you guys ever doubt, if you feel distant from God, if you, if you sin and feel shame or guilt, if you struggle to remember what the essence of the faith is, or on the flip side, on your best days when things are going perfectly and you're tempted to, to trust in circumstance or your own strength to think too highly of yourself, either end of the spectrum, if and when you get in that place, read the ends of the New Testament letters because the ends of the letters are the ends of the gospel. It is a period on the sentence of your salvation. The letters end this way because the gospel ends this way. There's nothing else. If there was, the letters might continue differently. But Paul says after all has been said, the end, the summary, the period on the sentence of what it means to be a Christian is the grace of Jesus Christ given to you and you received it. The love of God that you bask in, the fellowship of the Spirit, so you're not living for your own devices 
and purposes and ambitions anymore, but you've been brought into the family of God. That is it. If you ever doubt or struggle to believe that, or you, you start listening to lies, like I do, all of us do, then read the ends of the letters in the New Testament and look at the periods, look at the benediction, look at the summary, look how he signs off, and then believe. Like in this case, the grace, love, and fellowship from God through Jesus our Lord is, is ultimately it, and we have that. There's no more mountain to climb, no ladder to ascend, no further mystery to solve. Christ has solved all mysteries, clarified all tensions, answered all questions. He, that's why they call him the fulfiller of the Old Testament, the fulfiller of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been revealed, Romans 16 says. And so Paul says, rejoice, church. Be happy in this. Lift your heads. Walk upright. Be happy that God has died for your sins at great cost to himself. He's given everything up so that we might be brought in. He has agreed with us. He has made union with us. As Colossians 1 says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything I, I just said there, Colossians 1 says to that church, the gospel came to you. Isn't that amazing? So the gospel is not something you sort of came to or found or went and traveled and found. Other religions talk that way. We don't take pilgrimages as Christians to, to other places as though we, we think, what saved me is my worn down soles of my shoes. Look how far I traveled. That's not how we think. Instead, we say, the gospel of Jesus Christ came to me when I was least expecting it. It kicked down the doors of my hardened heart. So I can't boast in myself, Paul says earlier in this letter. I can't boast in myself. It's a boastless religion. I boast instead in the Lord. And I rejoice in that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ came to me, and I believe because he softened my heart. I loved, I reciprocated it only because he first loved me. And he showed me that. This is why Paul says rejoice. If these weren't true, we couldn't really truly be happy in the Lord and rejoice because there'd be more work to do. But instead, God says, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, he says. Believe in the Father, believe also in me. Right? I came to give you peace, a peace the world does not understand. And in, the, in that vein, Paul signs off. And, and, and again, guys, I would say so should we. Not that we don't, we keep saying this, right? But the end of, of the mantra of the gospel is always Christ crucified um, every day. And today is, is no exception. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the book. Uh, thanks for leading us as a church through the book of 2 Corinthians these past several months together. And um, God, I pray for myself and everyone here that, um, the book would continue to get rich and beautiful for us. Uh, there's a lot more in the book um, that certainly we didn't have the time to unpack and things that, um, that we could see more clearly. So I pray that it would be a sweet book for us the rest of our lives um, as individuals and as, as a church. But thank you, God, for the love in it, the suffering towards obstinate people like us. Uh, your love was given not to worthy people, uh, but to unworthy people. And that's, makes, that's what makes it so beautiful. Enemies, not friends. Disagreeers, not agreeers. 
uh, Jesus, thank you for taking on the kiss of death, that we might have the kiss of God and that we might be able to have that familial, intimate love with each other as a church family. Uh, Help us in that way. We pray in Christ. Amen.